Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what is up, everybody? And welcome back to the Vortex Nation podcast. And welcome back, Stephen Ranella, author, host of Meat Eater, the TV show, host of the Meat Eater podcast, and uh, all sorts of other great things going on. Steve, so happy to have you here. Uh, what's going on, man? Uh, thanks for having me on, man. Um, I really appreciate it. And, uh, and I, I, uh, always good to catch up with you. And, and, you know, I don't know how much transparency you like for your listeners, but we just had a fun little chat. Oh, little yeah. Preamble yeah. chat. I truly enjoyed it. We like all the transparency here. Yeah, we just got we did a fan we did family vacation and just got back from that and um no th- things are great man been been very very busy and and uh using my vortex optics all the time packing them up right now for uh well I'm not taking them ice fishing Mark but when I get back from ice fishing I'm taking them down to uh down to to Mexico to hunt coos deer nice man nice that'll be and, and I'm going down uh, I'm going down optics heavy dude that is the only way to do that <laughs> I will be carrying five vortex items range finder two binos one spot and scope and a rifle scope we probably talked five right yeah oh yeah and the, the math well, works for glass me glass heavy <laughs> glass <laughs> heavy my friend yeah you're like a, yeah, a shirt pants boots and a, a suitcase of optics uh dude that's i mean we probably talked about this before but that is the most optics intensive i've only done it in arizona mm. but like nothing i've done nothing else that's more optics intensive yeah and and not because I work for Vortex. It's one of my most favorite hunts. I love just looking for those little things. Sure, it's uh, yeah. You know, people like people always talk about like, oh, we sat in one place of glass all day. But when you think about it, a lot of times, you're like, yeah, that's not really true. But doing that, like, you really can sit in one like a good spot. You can sit in one day, and the thing is, you'll <laughs> you'll find deer. And, you know, late in the day, right? You'll find here, you're like, and it doesn't make sense that you didn't see it earlier. Yeah. You're like, I've looked at that spot 500 times and now there's a deer standing there. Yeah. Or it's like, there it is. And there's 50 yards of opening around it. And you didn't see it till that moment. It like, you know, I, I often wonder like what it would have been like um, pre-optics, right? Hunting coos deer. You probably would have just kind of wandered around trying to jump them up kick them up, mm-hmm. get a crack at them, you know, I'm sure, or wait on water or whatever, but man, it's, um, Oh, I love it. I love it. I like the looking aspect of it, how surprising it is, how every time you get one, you walk up and you're like, Oh wow, that thing is really small. <laughs> <laughs> I know. They, I mean, they already, and it's, uh, for some reason, at least I find they don't look that small when you're looking at them or when, even when you're shooting why. at them. Cause you're, cause you're from like me, you dude from the Midwest, you have in your head, how big a deer is, right? Yeah. So in your head, like a big buck, right? Sound like, like, you know, Wisconsin, big box, right? Like a big buck <laughs> is, you know, it could be 200 pounds, 180 pounds, 200 pounds. So when you see it, you're like, oh, there's that thing that I know. And that's what it is. And then you go up and it's half that easily size. Every time I've seen someone walk up to a moose, people are always like, holy cow, is that thing big? Every time someone walks up to a coos deer, they're like, 
wow, is that thing small? <laughs> you know, it's, it's inevitable. Hundred percent, man. You know, and I guess like in some ways too, like the scale of them, like everything about them is just scaled down. So like sure. proportionally, they're kind of they're set up the same. But then, man, like yeah. you said, you, you you walk up and you're like, holy man. Well, I guess I'll you, I'll put it in my backpack. Let's go. Yeah, the scale thing's interesting too because if you look like like uh, ninety pounds, the box ninety pounds, hundred pounds, whatever. And if you can, if you can get a hundred and ten inch coos deer, you are very, very, very happy, right? Mm-hmm. But that rack on his head looks like a one ninety. It looks like a like you know if you're if you're like not accustomed to him and you're you know some guy from Wisconsin, Michigan, whatever, and you're looking across the opening at one. Um, and you see a, a, a 110 Kuzier, you think you're looking at like a, like you think you're looking at a 190 buck because the scale of his rack to his body is directly proportional. Yeah. Yeah. So you almost have to behold the antlers only have, like you have to behold the antlers with the deer. Like if you just skull plated it, it, it would lose all significance. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be like, you'd be like, Oh, a little, a little buck. Right. <laughs> It's you like, have to always take a sharpie and write like "coos deer" on the skull plate so people know what they're looking at. No, hundred percent, man, hundred percent. The moose thing that you brought up too is like funny because I, I've only been on one moose hunt, but we got lucky. I think we killed, I think we killed five. It was crazy. Yeah, like, I remember you doing that, dude. And it sounded like a like an absolute moose bloodbath, and also a thing where people had to sharpen a lot of knives. Yes, I mean, hundred percent. And then, but like you said, like. Every you watch any hunting show, like you know somebody they they shoot a moose like oh like they're just like it's staggering they're how big they are, and you're like yeah 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 they're big you know and then but until you stand over one, comprehending the scale of everything about them you you can't until you're standing over them and you're like wow that nostril is the size of a softball you know <laughs> we uh we took a, a a good scale so like a digital scale we use to get luggage right. So like a, like a very trustworthy scale we use for luggage. And we took a ham off a moose, not an exceptionally big one at all, just a run of the mill bull. And this is cut like bone in, cut off at the knee, 113. And that was not like a, it wasn't like a freaking giant. You know what I mean? Right. It was like a barely, it was a barely legal, a barely legal bull, 113. I mean, so there's a coo- there's a coos deer right there. <laughs> yeah, and really probably bigger. that dude's skinned out hoofless leg is a coos deer. Dude, I mean that's crazy. Yeah, I mean I think the first coos deer, I, I think I'm, I guess I've only shot two of them, so the first of the two, but it was like a nice uh, you know three point or you know four point if you call you know include the eye guards or I guess you know Western. Dude, count. their whole system account knows we should listen. That that's right for reform. <laughs> I feel I always have to. Uh, consider where i'm at geographically with how i yes. talk about deer like you're like oh hold on let me uh, switch languages here yeah so continue your point and then i'm gonna have i have to i have to insert a brief comment about how they count antlers down in the southwest <laughs> please do so here in wisconsin this deer that i'm referencing right now we just call it an eight point exactly yeah. But uh, somehow it becomes a three point. <laughs> it's not even like divided by two, dude. It becomes a three point in the Southwest. <laughs> so, but I bet that deer was like, you know, it was a nice buck, but I, dude, I bet he was like 75 pounds. Like yeah. he was like not a big deer. Um, what were you going to say though? So what, what are you, you got some, you got a reform thing going on? So we, 
because when we're hunting coos deer, we're hunting coos deer with people from around the country. We have <laughs> we have agreed upon that we talk only in what we call, we would say, I saw a Michigan eight, so that everyone knows what it is you're talking about. Because an Arizonan would in his mind be like, okay, a Michigan eight. So it must have had 18 times <laughs> <laughs> because like, just so, I mean, just so people are aware, they don't count the, the eye guard because, because on mule deer, like it's customary to not count the eye guard on mule deer. Cause it's like either not there or, or teensy. Right. So they extend that, but you could have a coos deer eye guard that's six, seven inches long. That's true. But they, they, they throw it out. Perfectly good time. Well, and I, well, I'll go back to if you were, if you know, we're talking about if you're going to talk in terms of maybe scoring the deer, you're going to, you're not going to not include the eye guard. Yes, they should be reprimanded and and and, and regulated. <laughs> yes, by, like, <laughs> by the government. <laughs> like if I'm hunting mule deer, or or blacktails or sick blacks, whatever. I'll say, like, I saw, I'll say, like, I saw a three-point with eye guards. Like, saw, yeah. a, like, I, I separate the two. I, I don't know. It's confusing. Why, why did I we have, make this so confusing? I have, here's what I've, here's what I've settled on. And, and we can move on. I, I, we can, I don't mean to be dragging this out too long. But I have settled on a general strategy, sort of an international strategy, mm. where we say a lot of, like, um, blank by blank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, like a you know, a, a five by five whitetail, and by that I'm trying to like make everybody happy. I'm trying to make it make sense to everybody. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know where where I fall apart a little bit with, uh, like I said, like I try to keep my my speak regional. So if I was in you know Wisconsin, I'd go. I saw an eight point, right? But if mm. I see if I see a fork buck, I can't not. I have a hard time not calling it a two point. Like I still, but everybody here would still oh. call that a, a four point. Mm-hmm. But I think that. See, I'm like the kind of guy that when he goes somewhere, I, I still, I don't do this, but I'm, but it's similar annoyance is when you travel with someone and they keep referring to what time it is at their home. <laughs> right. Like you go like, you go to Hawaii with someone and they're always talking about what's well, 3.30 my time. I'm like, well, let's just talk about what time it is here. And then we don't need to do so much math. That makes it makes a lot of sense. And so you take that same thing where like you talk about the antlers based on how they like to talk about them, where they're from. Right. But I like to talk about them as though they all lived in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm, I'm sorry, man. We, that, I'm ready to move on. Hey, I'm man. ready to move on, Mark. I, <laughs> I'm ready to move on with my life. I think we covered some really good and important ground there. And I don't know where we, I don't know where we submit these ideas uh, mm. but but I think uh, we'll have, we'll have to figure that uh, down the road. You've been doing. Uh, I saw on the Instagram machine the other day. You've been doing a little bit of trapping. Yeah, uh, you know, just a, just a small amount. We do a little bit every winter. We like me and my kids, friends of mine. Uh, ice trap real heavy duty when I was younger. I start like uh, we we started. I had brothers that were you know year and a half older than me, and then a year and a half again. So. We started catching muskrats when we were 10, you know, and I think the first year we trapped muskrats back then, this was in 1984 uh, when I was 10 years old. We caught 21 muskrats that year, I remember. 
Wow. And they were like valuable back then, you know, I mean, this is 1984 dollars and we got, you know, six bucks, five, six bucks a piece for those muskrats. Dude, that's a uh, big time. Yeah, it was cool. It was like better than mowing lawns. By the time I was up into 18, 19, 20, I was trying real hard to, you know, I wanted to become a professional trapper. In my first two years of college, I went to community college, all night classes. So I graduated high school in 92, 93 and 94. I did all night classes at the local community college. My tuition was like 600 bucks a semester and just, just try to like live my aspiration of uh, going full time. But prices were just getting, fur prices were getting lower and lower and lower coming off these like astronomical highs of the late seventies, early eighties. And it just became untenable. It was just impossible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to pull off. And then, you know, I kind of went into whatever I went into. But now I like to, you know, we, we like to dabble in it. I don't sell anything, but we use it for stuff and get a lot of hats made, like fur hats, wintertime hats and mittens made for friends and family. When I was a little kid, I always dreamed of trapping uh, like a far north trap line for Martin. You know, mm-hmm. so the last couple of years, last year I set out to catch, uh, try to catch a Martin. Got a couple, got a couple this year. And uh, the fur products from Martin are marketed as sable, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that long ago. They're worth, you know, 250 bucks. Wow. Um, yeah. Back around like 2013 and 2017, things spiked up and Martin jumped way up right now. They're, you know, with COVID and various other factors, oil prices haven't taken a dip. They're very low. The, the, the countries that drive the fur markets are South Korea, China, Russia. Mm hmm. Fur prices are low right now. But like I said, I don't, I'm not doing it to sell it. But this year, we caught some coyotes, uh, martens. We just fleshed and stretched three skunks. Whew. You know, yeah, I got various stuff. And, and uh, I've had some stuff made for my wife out of it. But I'm also just trying to get a collection. I'd like to have a collection of all the North American fur bears. That'd be cool. Because they could be pretty sweet, man. Yeah. And it's something I like to expose my kids to, right? There's a lot of woodsmanship that comes from it. There's also, you know, it's like, it's pretty like gear intensive and tool intensive. Right. And it's like learning how to use things. And then reading sign. I learned more about reading sign than from trapping than any other thing I've ever been engaged in, because, you know, you look at, you, you begin to look at a very fine scale, right? Like, like, like a mix, a mix track is about what you'd get if you pressed your pinky into the mud. Right. So when you get to where you can cruise down a creek bank or walk down a creek and and train yourself to see that level of detail or like tail drag marks, you know, from something, right? And you get used to looking at that fine of, of a level. And also, on most anywhere you go to trap, you might be, there might be four or five fur bears, legal fur bears using the same area. So you're, you're looking for very minute things but you're also looking for quite a variety of things that, that manifest in a variety of ways right like like a beaver caster mound a, a minx track a muskrat's tail drag an, an otter haul out or an otter slide it's a lot different than when you just have it in your head like like n- not to discredit it but like if you're just looking for deer sign right you're sort of you're kind of pushing out a lot of stimuli or, or a lot of stimuli is just sort of irrelevant right yeah what you're doing but here you're kind of like because of the wide variety of things you might find, you become really good at, I shouldn't say good at, the challenge is to see so much more. So even to spend a few days or a week every year out doing that level of analysis, 
is valuable. And I don't just mean to say it's valuable for, for kids. And, and I do like to expose my kids to it, but I think it, it, it's valuable for me. You know, I'll still see stuff. Uh, I'll see tracks. I'll see trails in the snow that I can't figure out, you know, even to this day, I'd be like, man, you know, someone's like, what's that? I'm like, man, I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and so you're, you're really learning. You're really learning a lot. I also am drawn to, uh, you know, I'm a little bit nostalgic, man, to be honest with you. And so many of my uh, outdoor heroes, you know, were, were frontiersmen, trappers, and that skill set I have a lot of appreciation for. And I like that little bit of a, a connection to those activities from, you know, that, that were of such relevance to American history and to survival a couple hundred years ago, just for this, the nostalgic, the nostalgia's sake, I like to get involved in it as well. Yeah, for sure. No, and uh, you, you bring up some super interesting stuff there as far as like my whole life, you know, I've heard, you know, man, you want to talk to someone who's a good outdoorsman or, or can read sign or whatever, talk to a trapper because they, mm-hmm. they know what's up. And hearing you describe it in that way paints, I've done very, very little trapping, but kind of paints, I guess, paints the why behind that statement. You know, like I said, you know, I'm prim- primarily a big game hunter. So like I said, you can focus on a deer track or an elk track or something like that, but you're also able to block out all the noise, right? Like yep. you're like, you're looking for this one singular thing. Not that the other things don't matter, but you're able to focus, right? Where what you're describing is like, no, man, like I'm taking it all in. Like you, you, yeah. like you said, you're, you might be after four things, and but like at that level of detail, like I said, like it's not like you're looking like a for an elk track, you know, damn near half your boot track. It's like very subtle things. So that's uh, that that's really cool. You actually, you kind of, I haven't done it yet. I say yet because hopefully this year is the year. But trapping is definitely something that I've been wanting to get get into. And I think, you know, definitely when you came out here that one year and we're trapping beers, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was like, dude, that is like, it was just so cool to me and like foreign. And I, I think I share some of the things with you as far as like, you know, the history, the nostalgia, you know, reading like, you know, Kit Carson, Trailblazer and Scout when I, when I was a kid, things like that. And then also like almost a response, not a responsibility, but like as an outdoorsman, like some, some of those types of activities like they just seem like they're getting a little bit lost and it's like man like somebody's got to carry at least for me probably what little knowledge on or show my kids I don't know I just I just it's something I'm very interested in doing a little bit more of and uh I don't know man yeah it just seems just seems super cool it's a good time right now to do a little dabbling because fur prices are low right now Mm mm-hmm so there's a lot of stuff that's just like the commercial guys, a lot of guys, that, commercial guys that might normally be real active, mm-hmm. just can't justify the chase right now. Yeah. Right? And so they're not running as much. You know, when I was growing up, man, it was like we'd be out oh, at the setting at the strike of midnight opening day on stuff we knew that other guys were going to hit, you know, for muskrats and whatnot. And right now, because prices are low, if you're just trying to, test the waters a little bit and learn how to make a couple sets. There's a lot more fur out there that no one's after. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to like beaver, muskrat, things that can do some property damage, there's probably a higher likelihood that there are people out there who would love to get someone in on their place to remove some muskrats, remove some beavers. Those are kind of the big ones for crop damage. 
a lot of times you'll get people to have a pretty antagonistic attitude toward raccoons and coyotes as well. (laughs) And because you don't have a lot of guys beating the door down who are doing from, from commercial pursuit, you can kind of get in right now and get, you know, get enough ground to make a few sets and learn a few things. At least that's what I'm finding right now. Uh, You know, at other times when it might be like a very, a highly competitive atmosphere. Yeah. That's an, that's an interesting way to look at it too, uh, which I hadn't, but yeah, I mean like, I know very few people that do any trapping and the ones that I do know they're not really doing it on any sort of like, you know, grand scale or commercially or something like that. Like you said, it's Mm. kind of like recreational. I dabble. Like I kind of want, I want to get to know the craft or I enjoy the craft and it's more of like a hobbyist thing than, than anything else. But, uh, those guys are always out there waiting in the wings though, dude. Like when prices, when whatever happens and it happens now and then like, you know, something, something in the global economic, sphere will will switch and prices shoot up they're they're ready <laughs> they're, they're they got the gear in the garage and they're ready to roll man and it's it's kind of funny to the degree to which it can uh that that, that people are ready to spring into action and go out because like what cooler way to go make some money man you know than like make being like in jim bridger's business you know <laughs> I just like that is just like hey, you know the fur prices go up. Like, where did these guys come from? Oh, they're there right now. They're watching football, but they're there. <laughs> they're just, when the time is right, just biding their time. When the time is right, they will strike. I got I got thinking about it even heavier this year. I was out archery deer hunting and I was checking out a piece of public here in in good old Wisco, and I I was going down this creek had like really interesting access and i thought i'd found the mother of all uh water crossings i'm like Mm -hmm. oh my gosh this trail is absolutely pounded i'm like set up here and i looked over i'm like oh wait a minute there's there's uh three chopped down trees right there and and beaver slide and but like man all along this creek like i mean it was like beaver slide beaver slide beaver slide i'm like man this might be a good little beaver spot man i'm gonna have to it kind of like uh lit the fire like i I better go uh finally get the get my uh trapper's ed degree from the state and uh and go do that oh man it's so yeah it's great And, and, and sending your hides off once you get them fleshed and stretched it's not that expensive i mean you know you, you don't want to send 100 beavers off to the tanner but it's it, it's just not an expensive thing you know mm-hmm. i don't know what it is you, once you get one flesh and stretch i mean you get the thing tanned for 25 dollars. that's crazy yeah then you get like a really cool really cool freaking hat made for less than 100 bucks yeah and then somebody says hey cool hat man you go well let me tell you about it you yep. be like how many things had to die to make your hat <laughs> <laughs> like, I can tell you exactly. <laughs> Seven. <laughs> How much time you got, buddy? Um, I do. So we were talking about, you know, you said you got into trapping when you're 10, right? Which to me, that's like, I mean, that's even like a fairly introduction to, to the outdoors. So is that is that just something that was just ingrained in your family life was doing outdoor stuff or like were yeah, you just. My, my dad was not a trapper. Uh, very, very avid hunter, very avid angler. He had, like so many men, he had gotten interested in hunting, particularly had a lot of enthusiasm after the after World War II. He fought in World War II. Had me when he was pretty old. And those guys came back, like they had a lot of wanderlust. They knew how to camp. They, he just got really into it. He, he was a very early adopter into bow hunting. 
um, you know, started hunting with the bow in the late forties, early fifties. Wow. That is a lot of areas that were, you know, there weren't archery seasons back then. He was, he was involved in that, you know, he was with this group called Chicago Bowmen and they would like these different archery groups would be aggressively petitioning their States to create an archery season. A lot of people were slow to adopt it. Very similar to conversations today around crossbow seasons, right? Like, like, uh, you know, oh, they're going to, you know, ruin this and ruin that. They, they wound everything, what, you know, whatever, all, all the, all the things, right. And, they, and he was involved in that kind of stuff. And so definitely grew up around bow hunting, small, a lot of small game hunting, a lot of fishing. The traveling thing was funny because my dad, so he was born in 1924 and before he left for world war II, he got his girlfriend pregnant. Oh, wow. And they got married. So I have a brother that old. Okay. He was a, a half brother that old. He was a game warden in Colorado for 13 years, then became an elk guide in Colorado, Frank Jr., my dad being Frank. We went out to visit him the summer I was, the, the summer I was 10 years old, went out to Colorado. Uh, he had a lot of horses, and we did a big pack trip up in the mountains. Anyhow, when we left, he sent me home, me and my two brothers that I grew up with, in, in the home, the, that we were raised together in the same home. He sent us home with a half dozen. Like like donuts and eggs, traps are discussed in dozens. <laughs> okay. I don't know why. You buy a dozen of them. He gave us a half dozen Victor number one single long spring traps. And that became the basis of our trap arsenal. And then my dad got out a yellow notepad and created a little like uh, business ledger and backed us on enough money to buy i can't remember we bought six or a full dozen northwoods number 110 kind bears and we had to like sell furs and pay off our debts you know and uh and, and that was and then we had to learn how to use it and there was a fellow there's a taxidermist for whatever reason taxidermists trap a lot there was a taxidermist named mike heiner that i'm still he's got my he's got a mountain goat right now of mine he kind of showed us how they work right and showed us how to set them. And we just started figuring it out. It was probably one of the first things that like catching muskrats was probably one of the, yeah, not even probably was the first thing that we just went and figured out, you know, mm -hmm. and we're looking at like outdoor pursuits, hunting, fishing, whatever. I put a hell of a lot of value on being able to like pioneer something, figure something out. Right. And no discredit to someone who always goes in with someone or like the guys that know what's up, take them along. Cause I do that all the time, dude. When I was just in Hawaii, we were spearfishing. I was spearfishing with competition spear fishermen. I'm not figuring anything out. They're like, that's that. That's how you get it. That's that. That's how you get it. And I'm just there to like enjoy the success. Like this is not my creation. Like they knew the spot, they knew the techniques, they knew the gear. Right. And, and I'm just there to have a good time. So I do it too. However, things have an even greater value to me when it's like a thing that you figure out, you know, someone moves to a new area and they figure it out, like how to do something, you know, they, they pioneer it for their circle of friends or whatever. And, and that was a, a, a good lesson in that. That was probably like looking back, but not only just occurring to me right now, definitely the first thing we ever went and just had to like figure it out. Yeah. And that's a skill that, that serves someone not catching muskrats, but figuring something out is it, like that having that level of ambition, that level of like 
willingness to fail and trial and error. That's huge to be a well-rounded, successful outdoorsman. It's just like to, to come in and, and deal with all that to like pioneer something. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I agree 100% and, and definitely shared a lot of those same thoughts. Like the figuring it out, although frustrating at times, man, you learn you learn so much, you know, and, and just even even just doing stuff, uh, you know, on your own boots on the ground. Like, you know, like we do the podcast, you guys have your awesome podcast and there's like tons of amazing information. But until you actually just go and start figuring out and start doing that trial and error or, or just, just see those, you know, those slight nuances or or this situation was, you know, you start analyzing all the different situations that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, just a tremendous amount of value there you know, for, for hunting and fishing and figuring out and, and a lot of joy and pride that comes with it too. You know, like, I mean, yeah. I, I'm the same way. Like I've definitely gone on hunts where, you know, you're on a guided hunt or it's somebody else's spot and they're, and they're like 100% showing you the ropes and you, and, and I try to soak it all in and, and treat that as a, um, like a fast track education. But as far as like a fulfillment level, like not quite the same as just like going and figuring it out and, and, you know, hopefully becoming at some point being successful. Yeah. And, and all that time you spent with experts who have figured something out that improves your toolkit for when you do get into that situation. I had a, I had a guy, I was having a conversation with a guy the other day in Hawaii, but he happens to, um, he all, he has a place that he got involved in years ago in Southeast Alaska. And we share a love for Southeast Alaska. So he, he was in the military and, there's kind of this weird, like Alaska, Hawaii thing. I'm starting to figure out. Uh, okay. Yeah. There's like a mm-hmm. Michigan, Florida thing that I used to realize that like when you're in Michigan, if you go on vacation, there's a 90% probability that you did that in Florida. Yes. And there's just like, I'm always like, there's this weird, like Hawaii, Alaska exchange, like some kind of Pacific ocean thing they got going on. Either way, he's like a dude in Hawaii talking about Alaska, but he made a, he, he made a point to me where he, just what we're talking about. He puts a number to it. Like he's not a hunter, but he's a fisherman. He said, I force myself to spend 50% of my time exploring. I like it. Yeah. Cause you might be like, man, and he's got a fish he likes to catch and he's very good at it. And he's, he knows where to catch it and how to catch it. And he's like, man, I could just do that the rest of my life. But I have always had a rule. I spend 50% of my time exploring. I like it, man. I like it. And, uh, yeah. I, I find I do. So I just like new things and new places and there's just like, I just want to know and experience those new things and new places. And I guess in some ways by doing that, you forfeit, at least for myself, like I forfeit being really good at like maybe one thing. Like I'm like, I'm not an expert whitetail owner, but I can hunt whitetails. I've got a, a, a handful of decent spots here, primarily on public in Wisconsin. And like one spot, I guess to your point this year in particular, dude, I had like, if you looked at my Wisconsin Onyx, it's actually grotesque with pins, right? And a lot of those yep. places I, I haven't even been. It's just like that looks cool, that looks cool, that looks cool, yep. that looks cool. And so this year I'm like, I want to, I want to check these spots out. So I, I hunted a new spot. I didn't hunt the same place twice this entire uh, bow hunting season, and then finally got lucky on. Uh, I think I hunted seven days in a row, and finally on the seventh, I, man, I was gonna hunt day eight, but man, I was getting tired, but. But finally, finally got, finally got a buck, but, uh, which was like amazing. And again, it was like, figure it out, check it out, figure it out, figure it out, you know? And even though maybe I, on that one spot, like I was talking about, that was this year, I didn't, I didn't find like an awesome deer spot, but I might've found a hell of a beaver spot, you know? Sure, yep. 
Um, I'm a like I, I'm very much a proud generalist. I like to do a lot of stuff. There's not a month out of the year that there's not a thing that I'm every month. There's a thing I'm very excited about, not just preparing for, but every month of my year, there's an outdoor pursuit I'm excited about. Yep. I fish open water. I fish salt water. I like to ice fish. I like to trap. I like to hunt small game. I like to hunt turkeys. I like to hunt deer. I will, I will dream now and then I'll be like, man, you know, what would be interesting is to just become a guy who only, and I could do this, who just is entirely focused on mule deer, finding big bucks, right? And be like, I scout, I look for sheds, I run cameras, and that's my thing. And I sometimes think that would be so cool. I would get rid of so much gear. I would have just <laughs> one box. I would, instead of being like, I got like snowmobiles, I got a jet boat. I'd have like one box of gear, one tote full of gear. And I'd be like, that's my thing. I don't do anything, but I was listening to a mule deer expert the other day and he talked about elk hunting as though he's like, I don't hunt elk. Right. Cause he's just like, he can't bear the idea. A day spent hunting elk is a day that he could have spent looking for mule deer bucks. Right. And I love a big mule deer buck more than anything on the planet, man. I could see it, but I just, I'm, I'm so far down the generalist path that, that, that I, I, I can't give up on it now. And I'm telling you, man, how many times in your life have you heard someone say something like, we used to deer hunt, but my uncle sold the farm. That will never be me. Like, I'll, I'll defend everything I have, like, you know, tooth and nail, but there's nothing you could take from me. No particular, no single pursuit, no single property, no single access. There's nothing you could take from me that would really even, like, be, be a chink in my armor, man. No. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm like... There's there's too many places I want to go. Mm-hmm. I can't get to them. Like I look like going back to the even just look at just Wisconsin singularly, dude. I will never get. I I will physically never get to every pin on that map because like, you know, it's like August. It's like oh my gosh, you know. Do you want to do you want to go try and hunt Sitka blacktails? Oh maybe maybe you should go try an archery antelope hunt. Oh maybe you should go on an alpine uh, black bear hunt. There literally is like not enough time. It's uh. It's a blessing and a, and a curse, all the, all the opportunities that we have out there. But Yeah, uh, I like living that way. I like living, I just like being excited about stuff. And winter used to be a little slow. And, and um, last year I bought a couple, uh, last year I bought a couple snowmobiles because I was like, dude, there's a lot of stuff I could be doing. So I bought two snowmobiles with the seat, the back seats on them. I can put, I can put one kid in front of me, one kid on the seat behind me. My, my wife can drive on with the other kid. And now we're like, I'm like, bring it on, man. <laughs> Ready for wintertime. <laughs> no more looking back, wondering what happened to everybody. <laughs> That's your sledhead now. Your family is sledheads. I am because the little kids, like when snow gets up to their belly button, they just don't go through it quick. <laughs> it was a factor. They're, frustra- they're frustratingly slow. <laughs> man, I bet, but you know, I bet it's just opened up tons of ground that you just would otherwise just not get to oh i had a bunch of stuff i wanted to go do ice fishing spots and you know just like little trips and yeah i was like man i gotta find a way to get everybody through thick snow because <laughs> 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 this is not working the walking's not working i want to get back i want to get back to uh like your your writing i guess like you know we kind of opened up with like you're you're an author you know you you host the the, the meteor tv show and, and you have the podcast, but one of my favorite things about 
like you look at the TV show, you're like, well, it's a TV show. Mm-hmm. But it's to me, it's the writing that's the writing and the videography combined are are amazing. But it's it's so captivating and it's written in such a way and so compelling and conveys the hunt in a way that I think is that you could be like the most passionate hunter and and understand and appreciate and be like, dude, yeah, yep, that that's exactly how I feel, right? But I think a person who doesn't hunt can get that same thing out of it. So I think I think that's that's really cool. Like when did you not when did you start writing? You're like, oh it was the third grade. Uh, but like when did you realize that like maybe you had a passion for writing or, or was writing something that you were just naturally good at? So you're like, oh, I guess, I guess I'll just do that or I'll pursue that because I'm good at it. Or, or do you genuinely love yeah. it? Like where, what was the impetus kind of for that, you know, direction in your life? There was probably, you know, there was a bunch of things that, that, that began probably when I was around in, in, in 10th grade, to be honest with you. If, if I was going to go look at like a handful of things as a writer that had like, I can think of a handful of things where like had that thing not happened, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And maybe I'm wrong about one or two of them. Like maybe it would have, but like very instrumental things that, that it's hard to picture the same outcome in the absence of those occurrences. The, the fir- I'm not going to go into all of them, but just to give you an example. Yeah. When I was in 10th grade, I had a teacher named Robert Heaton. He's, he's still alive today. I, I was in his like a composition course with him. And he was an extremely dedicated teacher. Extremely dedicated. This guy would take a bullet for his kids, man. He didn't take any shit. Very strict. People, a lot of kids like like a lot of kids didn't like him because they, they couldn't hack it. But in his composition class, he really encouraged people to write about what they knew. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and you got all these, you know, and I understand like, I, I'm not even, I'm not an expert on education, but you know, you have like the works that everybody's supposed to read and you're supposed to write all these certain things. He, he did what he was supposed to do. Like he, he followed the rules, but he made, a, put a lot of personal time and effort within that to give people room to like work their passions into what they did. And I remember in his class, like four composition class, I remember writing a piece about fishing bluegills on Wolverine Lake. I remember writing a, 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 a piece about how to catch a red fox, like a process description, how to catch a red fox. And, and he really pushed that. And then also submitted a, a thing I wrote to like a, a, a writing contest. And I don't know what was in my head, but I actually said I didn't want him to. I don't, know what, I don't know what I was thinking, but he did. And I, and I won a second place in some writing contest for he, the thing he submitted my work toward. And I got to go to this, uh, you know, they had this little award ceremony. I remember the kid that won got like 250 bucks. <laughs> and I got a thesaurus. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and 250 bucks is a lot of money back then. And I was, I was kind of bummed. And I remember uh, Mr. Heaton, he was there with, he took me to the thing. And him saying, sure, she got 250 bucks, but he said, there's a million dollars worth of words in that book, you know? And that was kind of like his attitude, right? And from that point, from that age, whatever the hell age you are on your 10th grade, 16. Yeah, because I caught my first fox when I was 16. So 
from that point, I had it in my head that it was it, that it was a, a thing that was open to me, and that I had some talent for. And there's there's when you look when you think about talent, you always look like like what's sort of there and what needs to be cultivated. I don't know. I might not have actually had talent. I don't know. It might have been that 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 at that age, just someone telling you that you do that the right kind of encouragement is ninety percent. You know, like maybe 10 percent in your brain and 90 percent is to what degree do people celebrate that and make that seem valuable? And to what degree are people dismissive of it or, yeah. or, or don't have an applied value to it? I, I could think of something very similar in my own household. Like I don't like I've never it's like a joke among my friends how little I know about organized sports. Right. Uh, if I make a football reference, it inevitably involves like the 1980 <laughs> Bears. You know, like I'm talking about like Fridge Perry, right? Like I don't know anything about football. I was just so about people, to say, hey, remember Refrigerator Perry? So it's like a little bit of a joke. Now, one of my kids could have potentially. I don't. I honestly don't think they do. Like I'm pretty sure they don't. But let's say one of my kids had like outstanding athletic potential. It would in my household with what we do. It would probably go missed. Yeah. So there's like a little bit of a, you know, there's this kind of like luck of the draw. And for whatever reason, my dad, he was a big outdoorsman. He really had a lot of respect for the written word, had a lot of respect for communication, and especially had a lot of respect for communication if you were communicating about the outdoors. <laughs> so there was never any family pressure. When you hear people like, oh, my dad wanted me to go into the family business, or they wanted me to be a doctor, or wanted me to be a lawyer. I never had like none of that. When it came to perfect, like when it came to like being a writer, doing doing what I'm doing or doing TV, anything like that, even though my dad didn't live long enough to see me going to TV. So let's just stick to the writing thing. Um, but my mother certainly did. I had people from day one who were like, that's the coolest thing in the world if you can pull that off. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and 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 this, I guess this is like somewhat of a lesson for for parents out there. And uh, it's it, it's hard to hold up, but they were right because that wound up happening. And, and you realize that that you know, without someone like Mister Heaton, without like that encouragement from my parents, I could easily have gotten off on some other you know, gotten off on some other track. And I had distractions, man. I've talked about this before, but I was real hot on joining the military. And my dad, who was a veteran, was the the, the one that didn't want me to join the military. You know, and that would have been a very different path for me, right? So you, you make these like lefts and rights throughout life. But when I, when I really think about, look back on it, that was probably, I'm sitting here talking to you today, probably because of those things that happened in those years. Yep. Well, I can tell you, I think uh, you definitely put that thesaurus to good use because I, th I think, you know, every word in it. Cause when I, I listened to the, the podcast a lot and I've heard you speak before and probably about three times uh, per episode, I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to look that one up. <laughs> well, well, I'm gonna get yeah, my yeah, own. If you listen closely, you'll hear us spend a lot of time debating what words mean. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking up. Uh, it was yesterday. I was thinking about how I was gonna intro it, and actually, I didn't even intro it. How I was planning on doing, but I was gonna kind of describe you as consummate outdoorsman. But I was like, well, I better. I was concerned about the spelling, if it was the same or different than consummate. Oh yeah, so I'd look or at consummate or or, <laughs> or the suit broth, right? <laughs> and see, I didn't even know that one. Uh, yeah, cons yeah, we're gonna consummate the relationship, right? So I had it, I had it, I had it on my computer screen, and 
Eric comes over. He's like, dude, what the hell are you looking up? I'm like, look, it has two meanings. I'm looking at this meaning right now. It's listed right here. And he's like, well, you do what you want. But uh, no, I heard someone recently like horribly mispronounce a word. And they were like, instead of counting against me, that should count for me because it shows that I read the word and didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Which demonstrates that I read. <laughs> it, I can read. What um, like I've I've always wondered, and maybe it's just because you're just good, you're just good at it. But how does I guess like a good writer, like you've written books, right? Like I, I mm-hmm. like I, I've written a handful of like you know articles or whatever, but it's very, it's like very singular, very linear, right? And when you write a book, there's like so many stories and so many plots and subplots and twists and turns and like like you'll you'll go here and then all of a sudden you're over here like I think of it like like the story is a river and then like you know the river's flowing and you're on the main channel but then like there's like three braids that you can take and you take this one which would be like a subplot but then you end up back in the main channel and I just I don't know how you like tie tie all that stuff together like throughout and then at the end yeah i call it i call it you know i guess striving for to be pretty elastic the the way it works for me this might not make a terrible amount of sense man there's so many good let me let me interrupt that thought and just say there are like so many good metaphors about the writing process one of my favorites is uh, a writer i can't remember who the hell said it something to the effect of it's like uh driving at it's like driving your car at night where you can only see as far as the headlights, right? Mm-hmm. You drive for hours and hours and hours. You can never see more than just what's in the headlights, but you eventually get where you're going, you know? And, and I feel a little bit like, like a long writing project is a little like that. You're just, you're just looking out a, a sentence, you know, and then you, you keep doing them and, and, and you arrive somewhere. But I think that to, to speak totally writerly about it, and anytime someone starts talking about writing process, it sounds like pretentious and like self-important, but it's very important to me that, that everything I'm, that everything I'm writing is, is actually interesting to me. A lot of writers do great writers. They do assignments from their editors and and that like, that's a tremendous service that people do for society that that, uh, the editor assigns a thing and a writer goes out and they do it. I don't do that. Well, it's hard for me to pretend to be interested in something I'm not interested in. So I've always had to focus on what's interesting to me and eventually got to the position where I could just do that. I could focus on what's interesting to me and not pretend to be interested in stuff I'm not interested in. I also have a thing where like, that's the first check for me. So if, if, if I'm writing something, I'm, I'm always dealing with things that are interesting. And I have, when I think about things, I tend to go down rat, little rabbit holes. And when I write about stuff, I tend to go down little rabbit holes or I'll see a thing and it reminds me of something that probably most people wouldn't be reminded of if they looked at it. Instead of throwing it out, I'll try to really ask myself, why does looking at that, this is not a true one, but let's just say, why does looking at that mountain peak remind me of my second girlfriend, you know, like, or a breakup, you know, I'd be like, okay. I could just ignore that or I could really find out like what it is about it and, and, and finding out the, what it is about it lets me go down all these different paths of things I'm interested in. So like my favorite book that I wrote 
like the one that if you know if you're gonna like throw one into my uh you know when they go to cremate me if you're gonna throw a copy of one of my books in there with me to have it mingled with my ashes i'd want like my book american buffalo in there and the reason i like the book is there's there's everything about that animal wanna being interested interesting to me and it led down a million paths like it led into pop culture it led into rock and roll it led into american history it led into physiology it, it led into po- like contemporary politics right it went every direction it right went every direction so from the band buffalo springfield to like the current superintendent of Yellowstone National Park. And it, it allowed and it allowed me to like explore all of these little things. And, and part of the job then is to show people that it's not just like random willy-nilly garbage I'm throwing at them, but it's part of this like this sort of like complex, really kind of fun, funny, interesting web of of coincidences and linked things. And so instead of struggling to find a way to put everything I'm interested into something in a way that might baffle people, I try to make it seem like, well, of course that's all in there, right? It's all sort of like logically connected if you're willing to look at it in this kind of elastic way. And, and that's been a thing that I've tried to do, but I, but I can't say that without pointing this out. That book, American Buffalo, which is 10 years old now, when I turned it into my publisher, they made me cut 100 pages out of it. So there is, everything is a collaboration, right? Yeah. I pulled 100 pages out of that book, man. There's 100 pages of stuff that I thought was interesting that they're like, you can't have a whole chapter on how Buffalo drown a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say can you this can. Be, can this be too or three pages of your favorite parts about how they really have a problem with drowning. <laughs> <laughs> That's a significant amount of pages though. Oh, it was 270 pages when it was all said and done. And well, yeah, it was at a point it was 370. Are we, uh, we, are we ever going to see the extended version, the, ed- the editor's cut or you know, no, I guess, no, part? the editor's cut it. I don't know what, whatever you would call it. No, I did it myself. And to be honest with you, I would love to, I don't know. I want to look, I don't know that it exists, man. It what? might not exist. Yeah. It might not exist. I'd like to someday find what happened to all that stuff. I, I don't know that I would have, uh, I bet it's gone. Like the, how I was doing, I've thought about that now and then I should find out. If, if it exists or not and do something with it. But one of the things I like that one of the stories I like best about the longevity of that book is that when I, when it first published, someone bought the audio rights and they ha- they hired a soap opera or not soap. Yeah. Soap opera actor to read the book. And the minute I put that CD in DVD, whatever CD, they sent me a copy of it and I turned it on and I couldn't get across the room fast enough to turn it off. The minute that dude opened his mouth, I'm like, that is not what this book sounds like. <laughs> right. Dude. I never listened to it. And I, I didn't realize that they only bought the rights for a decade. I just thought they had the rights for like, you know, eternity. So a decade runs out and their audio rights expire. And so a summer ago, I got to go down and do my own audio version. So I got to sit down 10 years later and read and spend three days 
in a studio and did my audio book and like how it needed to be. Yeah. And I'm telling you, man, that audio book and that 10 years after the fact, that audio book has sold far more copies than that original audio deal ever did. And it was kind of like one of those like really sort of like, you know, those little triumphs when you really, you know, like when someone like flips you off and you like, you want to come down the road and find that they got, you know, not, not hurt, but in a car crash. (laughs) (laughs) Just Just to get their comeuppance. Yeah. It was like, it was like sort of this thing. It was like, it was huge symbolic importance to me to get to a point in my career where I could go in and read my own damn book. Um, and it was one of those, like, it was one of those, yeah, there's justice in this world. <laughs> I'm sure that soap opera actor is finally getting his. I, I, my understanding is that those guys are very fast and easy to work with. And I'm sure that he was uh, probably bored out of his mind reading that. <laughs> well, I, I can't imagine just hiring. Um, well, number one, I can see where you'd be like, I can't believe this sounds like this. Like, you are ruining this. I'm very mm-hmm. displeased. I'm going to, like it would like it would it would irritate you to finish it. It, it would be irritating the entire time, right? But yeah. I I also can't imagine being hired to read that with any sort of uh, like not, not, like passion or or interest if you weren't interested in like the hunting or the natural world or. Like yeah. I don't even know how you would read that book, and I'm glad but, that that's how you could tell the the quick bit I listened to him read like the opening couple sentences, and he didn't understand what part of the sentences was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good story. I mean, it's a good story for me, you know. But uh, yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad you I'm glad you picked that one though, because when I was thinking about like the twists and turns and going all these different places. But, you know, you're like, oh, well, this is a book about a, a really cool buffalo hunt. And, but, like, it's it's just so much broader than that. But then it goes back into, I mean, at the end, like, you get, I mean, it's just, it's a, a book on adventure and eventually you get one. That's spoiler alert. Uh, but I, I won't spoil the book for any, like, it's just, man, it's a good one. I, I truly enjoyed it. It was just like, I was just, like I said, I was just glad that that was the, the example that you picked because that's what I had in my head when I was thinking about like, how do you, how do you conceivably tie all these stories mm. together, but still, like you said, get to where you're going. The next one I got coming out, which will be like book eight, counting cookbooks and, and guidebooks and stuff. But we have a book coming out called um, Outdoor Kids in an Inside World. And it's about raising kids to be engaged with nature and and the 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 way i describe it is raising kids to be radically engaged with nature like in a very hands-on way you know i I feel that one of the things i I take on the book is i feel like you'll hear hunting and fishing described as like extractive or what's the one they always use consumptive right Mm -hmm. and i think there's an, an emerging sort of negativity about having a hands-on engagement with nature like there's a, there's a lot of people and pressures in society that would have it be that that nature is like kind of meant to be looked at out the window mm-hmm. driving through yellowstone right. right and the minute we go into it we like soil it somehow or or, or, or diminish it or ruin it right and, and i think that that mentality with kids can kind of push kids away from wanting to have a muddy bloody mix up 
with, with nature and to really be like a, 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 a to recognize themselves as like a part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so this book talks a lot about, you know, instilling that in kids, sort of that bravery in kids and also just, just how hard and acknowledging like how hard it is to get kids outside, man. And, you know, and take things on like introducing kids to firearms and firearm handling. You know, there'll be a lot, there's a lot of things in there that it will, you know, I can already picture interviews I'll do where the questions will be like, you mean to tell me that you think kids should be able to, and, um, you know, I can already picture how it's going to go. And I can, and I'll be like, yes, I, yes, I do. Allow me to explain. (laughs) 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 You mean to tell me. Oh man, that's, uh, that's so important though. And, And I think for a lot of people, and I think it's because, you know, a lack of, lack of experience or lack of knowledge or even lack of awareness that you can go have these types of experiences like like outside of a park or you can you can encounter wildlife like outside of a park or enjoy a you know some sort of you know hunting or fishing pursuit like I I know most people know that exists but I know also know a lot of people that their one experience with wildlife might be that trip to Yellowstone Park and to me like even though I'm like I'm a big fan of the of the park system I, I think there are these amazing treasures but i i also feel like that's a very different experience than than outside the park you know and, and i also I, I wonder if because of that you know some people they're like well how could you go how could you go hunt deer or how could you go hunt elk where if my only experience with a deer or an elk was in yellowstone like it's kind of like i guess a warped sense of how that animal might act in the wild you know sure yeah yeah, but there's the other, there's another aspect of it. Like, I'm not sitting here trying to hack on going to parks, my, you know, my no. kids many Yellowstone. It's not that, it, it, but it's like, if you want to raise a kid, like engaged, if you want to raise kids to be engaged with nature and, and all the lessons about permanence and impermanence and just toughness, resilience, right? How many days are you going to go to the park, to, to a national park every year? A week, two weeks, right? If you live nearby, maybe you spend like, you know, a, a few weekends a year in a big, you know, showcase national park, that leaves a hell of a lot of weeks where they're not getting that. Mm-hmm. We, we got a thing now, like, I mean, grownups are spending just on average in America and kids aren't that much different. People are spending 90% of their lives indoors, waking hours. So a remedy for that is to, is to find like consistent, steady ways to have people be engaged outside. If that's a va- like if that's a value to you, and I point that out because that like the important part of this book is I have three kids. I found particularly when they were younger, I was having a problem because there was a lifestyle I wanted to show them, and it mattered to me, but it was so hard. It's so hard. It's hard to get everybody out for a bike ride, to get everybody out camping when you got like a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old is intimidating to the point where it's pretty tempting to just be like, never mind. Absolutely. And so it's not even trying to, it's not like the book's not available yet, but in the book, I'm not trying to say like, you hate the outdoors, but you should really love it. That's not my perspective at all. It's like, if you recognize that this is a thing that's important, Here's some things you might want to keep in mind. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one thing that I wanted to talk with you about too, is like you have a family, you got three kids, right? Busy schedule. 
right? Mm. And then, you know, and then I'm, I would imagine that there's even some hunts that are maybe like personal hunts that you're like, man, this is just a meaningful hunt for me. I don't, yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know how many opportunities nowadays you get to hunt without the camera, but hopefully it's some because I think that definitely can change the dynamic of the hunt. But sure. like, how, how do you, how do you navigate the time to have those experiences with your kids in the outdoors? Yeah, uh, I have, I don't let opportunities pass me by, man. One of my biggest, one of the, like, if I was going to like lay out my problems in life, I'm not going to get heavy on you here, Mark, but if I was going to lay out my problems in life, they'll be like, I travel a lot. Right. And and I, I love what I do. And I I love that ability. The people that are the people that would, would need to suffer that most would be my kids. Cause when I'm gone, I'm gone. Mm Mm-hmm. But when I'm home, I'm home, man. And we don't miss opportunities. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and a big part of it came from me. Maybe if I hadn't, maybe if I wasn't gone a lot traveling, I might have had, a, I might have developed a more passive attitude to just let a weekend go by and not have a lot going on and not have a lot planned because I'm always home anyways. Maybe it was that little bit of guilt that fueled me, but it made it that like, I, I keep the action coming. And like, there are, when, when you're trying to plan something, you know, like an outing, whatever, uh, there are always a bunch of reasons to bail on it. And, and I am tenacious, tenacious in making, <laughs> making it rain, dude. When it needs to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just will not, <laughs> like, I don't bail because of weather forecasts. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like what, when I got it laid out, like we're going to do it. And we live pretty, I like to think that during those times we have together, which are a lot, like we live them to the fullest and get out there and do stuff. You know, I'm already like recently, I got my birthday coming up February 13th. And I was recently looking at the family calendar and I wanted to go check. And I went and my wife like, is like the family calendar is inviolable. Like no one can mess with the family calendar. It usually goes where they put stuff in and I have to pay attention to it. But I turn the tides on. And if you went into the Ranella family calendar right now, you'll find that we're ice fishing on February 13th from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. Now there will be a negotiation, but <laughs> but I started like that was my initial offer, right? So when I get when I get negotiated down. I'm still going to probably land with a pretty satisfactory ice fishing trip on February 13th. <laughs> so when you wake up on February 13th, I, you can bet your ass that my kids are ice fishing. <laughs> and I'll fight. I will fight and fight and fight, and I will not let something happen. It's on the calendar. It might as well Dude, be. Family calendar. It's right Family calendar, man. There's no, you can't argue with the family calendar. Man, that's, I mean, it's very easy to not go like mm. there's a million it's like working out there's a million reasons why you can find not to go like you said the weather you know sure. do your kids like i feel like my kids right now they're like a little on the fence like I, i've got one that oh doesn't... i force them to, i force them to do stuff every day not every day i force them to go i force them to go i didn't think Crying. about i didn't think about that oh listen they're like i don't want to go i'm like i don't care i didn't ask you I'm like i don't care what you want to do uh <laughs> I just like, I force them to go do stuff. And every time, here's the thing. Every time they have a good time. They're glad they went. It's getting them out the door because so-and-so down the road asked them to do, to come over and play. 
I'm like, right, listen, that's not what's going to happen. We're going to go. We camp all the time in the summertime. Every single time, there's some thing, something that annoys me that someone says about the holiday night. They, they don't want to go. And we're like, you're going. Get in the car. There's no getting out of this. Sunday night, they're bummed to go home. Yep. I, I don't care. Like, I'm not going to push it so far. The other day I had my daughter out. We were, uh, we were out setting some Martin traps on snowmobiles and her toes were cold, like right off the bat. Like, I told her cold. And I'm like, I'll push this for a while, but I'm not going to push it so hard that you really, really get turned off. Right. But you're going to damn sure know how to do something with cold toes. This is not, you're not going to avoid this for the rest of your life. This could all backfire, but I was made to do stuff. I would, listen, I would wake up in the morning when I was a kid, hoping the weather would be bad. So we didn't have to go hunting because I, because like if people, if the family went hunting and I didn't go, I felt guilty. Right. I'd get a guilty conscience to not go. And so I'd hope that the weather would be bad. So no one went. So I didn't have to feel guilty and I could stay home, but it didn't backfire on me. But man, even if my daughter, let's say my daughter does what she threatens to do, which she's, she wants to move. She's, you know, she's not, she's nine, <laughs> but she's like, she, she's like, I'm going to move to LA. Cause she likes all the palm trees. Let's say she does when she's 20 years old, 18, she moves to LA. That's fine. That's great. But she'll move to LA knowing how to do something with cold toes and knowing how to shoot and knowing how to go along with something and get stung on the face a bunch of times by hornets. It's like, I don't need her to want to do all this for the rest of her life. I hope she does, but I don't have any control over what she's going to do as an adult anyways. Right. So I'm going to expose her to discomfort and expose her to the outdoors and expose her to the fact that sometimes no ducks come. And if she don't like it, like right now at her age, it's like tough. I like that. I'm going to write that down. Uh, force. Force them. Well, I mean, do they line up to wash dishes? <laughs> nope. It's like there's all kinds of stuff that we make kids do. My kids don't want to go down and get when they got to go down to the doctor. They don't want to go. Right. No, man. I'm... So there's some things I just like. I don't care what you want, man. I don't care what you want for dinner. I don't care what you want. To do on <laughs> I mean, that's that's what I've run into. Like, you know, we, we do a fair bit of fishing. We, we haven't really dove into the hunting that much. We went for pheasants one time on a little piece of public by the house. And, like, the one memory that my older daughter carries away from it is that the sticks are pokey. Like, I'm like, hey, sure. you know, maybe we should do something. Like, all she remembers is that those pokey sticks, and she didn't like I'm like, God, did I just, like, was that it? Did I, was that my shot? And I just, like, I just ruined it, you know? But I think to what you're saying, like, you know, you just got to, Got to stay after it and and be a little bit disciplined about it. You know what? There's two. Yourself. School, yeah, there's two. There's two schools of thought. There's a school of thought that like, oh, I don't want to push it because what if it turns them off? Right. So I'll just wait till they naturally come to it. But then I'm like, okay, what if they never come to it? The other school of thought is I'll push it too hard and turn them off. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, if you turn them off, push it too hard and turn it off, what's the worst case that they never get into it? You didn't know that they were going to get into it anyways. Yeah. If you're just waiting for him to come do it naturally. Yeah, I've thought about the whole thing, man. Check back with me in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very good chance that in 10 years, I'll be like, dude, I did it all wrong. Another funny thing is people say to me like, what if your kids don't like to hunt as much as you do? I'm, I always say, 
Not many people do. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, yeah, it's so true, you know. But I think, like, whether whether any of your kids, which I'm, I'm pretty sure they're probably still, like, if I was going to bet, you know, I don't, uh, I would bet that they stick with it. But, like, even if they didn't, like you said, you've provided these experiences where, like, yeah, you, you know that you can be uncomfortable and you're going to be okay. You, you can face adversity. You're going to be okay. You can face disappointment. You know, when the ducks don't come, you're going to be okay. You know, things don't always work out in your favor every time. You're fine. Yep. But when they do work out and you worked hard for it, it's awfully sweet. And I think yep. I think there's so many lessons, very important lessons to be learned there. And, I mean, I wasn't jo- – like, I'm going to – I'm going to implement a little bit more more forcing because it's challenging. You know, my girls, they have friends. We have a neighborhood. They have, all, they have a good group of friends. And even the other day, I'm like, okay, I think we're, I think we're getting ready to dip back in. We're going to go on our first squirrel hunt. You know, and I kind of had it mapped out. I had a time that we are going to go. But they wanted to, three of their girlfriends down the street were playing. They were all doing something. So I, so I was like, you know, go do your thing. I'm not – because I didn't, yeah. didn't, didn't want to be like – I didn't want them to be like, well, I'm missing out on my friends because my dad made me go squirrel hunting. But maybe I just need to make them go squirrel hunting. Oh, just, let me tell you another trick. At Halloween, take all their candy from them that night. And then they eat, they get the candy when they're out messing around with dad. Oh. Dude, I keep all that candy in my truck. A reward system. Yeah. And I don't give it to them right off the bat. But I'm like, listen, a mile down this trail, we're going to all have some Halloween candy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to give it to them right off the bat. Yeah, when uh, when my when my girls uh, get get Halloween candy, uh, I like your system better because I generally just take like I generally find myself in the deer stand the next day or so, and then I eating it. Then I'm eating it myself. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I hope my kids aren't listening <laughs> because there's so there's a thing called the switch witch. The way the switch witch works is after the kids go out and get a bunch of candy, they can make a deal where they trade their candy for a, like a toy. Okay. And the switch witch comes. She's like of the same spirit as the Easter bunny and Santa, like that kind of person. They come, the switch witch does, takes all that candy and leaves like some little toy. And this is a way you can just get it out of their hands so that they're not running around eating all that junk food all the time. You can do that. Like ours are getting old enough now where the switch witch thing isn't working anymore. But when they're real little, you can do that. Then it can just, be, and then when they're really young, they don't put together how all of a sudden in your truck, you have a bag <laughs> of candy that is remarkably similar in makeup to the candy that they got. It used to crack when our kids were like two, like the switch would come, they'd get like a stuffed animal, good deal, candy's gone. Two days later, I have a large bag of candy and they would never be like, oh, wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that that big of candy is conspicuously similar to the one in size and composition <laughs> to what I had the other night in my trick or treat bag. Dad, it's 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 still in the same pillowcase. <laughs> no, I move it into gallon size Ziploc. That's what throws that's what throws them off. But yeah, my stuff wasn't in a gallon size Ziploc. Just... <laughs> really throws them off the scent. What you know, we've been talking about kids a lot, which I mean, I mean, obviously, if if you have kids, you know, definitely a big part of your of your life, you know, particularly like when you take their candy. Your kids, uh, which I think is good, actually, you don't put them on social media, and, I, and my wife and I haven't done that either. I mean, like, I figure oh. at some point they will be, mm-hmm. but like, I don't need to do it. I don't know. Yeah, mine is, you know, it's weird. It's like a 
it's a discussion that my wife and I had many years ago. And what we didn't want to do is we didn't, we didn't want to have like to like have all the gray areas. We're sort of like just looking for like, what's our personal rule. And my social media stuff is, is public facing. Her social media stuff is private. Our kids are all over her social media stuff, which is available to friends, family, extended friends, like anyone that she lets into her thing, gotcha. but for public facing stuff on, on my stuff. Like, you know, we just, we don't show their faces, man. And it might be, I'll show the back of their head. No problem. We'll even make a joke where they're holding the fish up in front of their face. And it's like, we just made a rule. We don't show their faces. Yeah. And it just, it, you could point out all kinds of hypocrisies and be like, Oh yeah, bought you this and bought you that. But I don't really care. We like made a rule and we stick to it. And until we change our minds and make a new rule, that's our rule. And then and now and then even something will come up where I might have a, you know, they're, they're far away, whatever. And I'll show my wife, like, what do you think? Like, I want to put this, share this picture, but you, you know, the, their face isn't totally, you can kind of see who they are and she'll be like, yeah, that's fine. Or it'll be that it's several years old. They don't really look like that anymore. Well, the, the only thing we want to avoid is um, primarily is like people, you know, for, for me on public face and stuff that people would, find out their details and what they look like and, and recognize them in our absence. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes you know I mean, and, and, and that's just not something, you know, it's just, I, I just don't, I don't want that for them. And and I think they'll eventually decide like, I, I, there's nothing I'd like more than to have them come on the, be on the show. It'd be a riot. Right. But I don't think they're of the age to like make that decision. This doesn't need to be for everybody else. You know, I'm not, I'm not condemning people that do like it's a decision one makes and it's just a and, and we used to flirt with it and then one day just decided that that we're not going to and have and have stuck with that and that's just that's our family right I'm not in any way hacking on someone that puts their kids in a, in a in a public facing thing like you know I could see a world in which I had made that decision to do that but for us that's just how we run it right have they uh I mean you obviously have them involved in in uh outdoor activities what have they ever expressed interest in being on the show like oh man dad like i think that'd be cool to, to be on the show or oh, kills my boy man he i don't think he so much wants to be on the show as he just wants to go do stuff that we're going to do right and so if i'm going i'll be talking about doing something and he'll get real excited about it and i'll be like oh buddy it's a work trip you know and then he's kind of like ah, damn you know it's a real letdown to him but you know one of the things is is I go on work trips and then I wind up being like, well, that was cool. And then take my, uh, take my kids there. Yeah. Uh, our mutual friend, Doug Duren. Uh, I met Doug because he wrote a letter about a, you know, we, we became we corresponded over a book. I wrote my kids have hunted youth Turkey at Doug's. We just were spearfishing Hawaii with people. I met relationships I made through work. I'm taking them for Texas youth Turkey through a buddy. I met through work. So there's a way that, that one serves the other. They're not like these like siloed existences, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's, there's ways in which it, that, that there's certain benefits that, that, that come from it and, and, and good hunting and fishing opportunities that, that come their way through my work stuff. My, my personal, as, as you can imagine, and I know yours is as well, my personal life and my work life are, th there's no line between them. Mm-hmm. And I know with you too, like so many of your friends you hang out with, right? When you go out in the woods, even if you're out hunting on your own, you're using your own products, you're socializing with people you know, right? You and I are friendly. 
we originally met through work. It's, you know, when you have kids, they, they get sort of rolled up into that same blurriness as well. Yep. Yep. For sure. No, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. What, uh, man, I know we're uh, going long here. One, th- one thing that's, we've known each other for a long time, Steve, right? Even like pre-meter, you know, type stuff even, right? It's been really cool to watch Meat Eater grow and evolve over time. And I actually, the other fun part is is I see some parallels in some ways with with what you guys have done with kind of how Vortex has grown over time. Because I feel like we kind of met at sort of like a pivotal pivotal time in in both those processes. I mean, you guys, you know, started off with the show on, on Sportsman Channel, and now it's on Netflix, and then... You have the podcast, but then now now you have you know um, Mark's podcast. You got Remy's podcast. I mean, there's so many arms and amazing people at Meat Eater. Is there is there anything that's next on the horizon that you guys haven't done, or something that you're looking forward to or want to do? Oh man, there's always stuff I want to do. And one of the we talked earlier about just speaking from a media standpoint. We talked earlier about when I you know was becoming a writer, and at that time there was books and, and magazines and magazines were, were how people communicated. I, I used to be intimidated by digital media and, and intimidated by merging things because like I knew the book, I, I was involved in the book world. I was involved in glossy magazines. So my first big writing gigs were all with outside magazine, which was like this big, thick giant magazine that, that was like very influential and new things would come up, new ways of talking to people would come up and I would reflexively be not excited about it. I felt like it was, it was a risk and a threat. I remember the first time I heard, I remember the first time I've heard the word podcast. I mean, I honestly remember the first time I heard the word podcast, I, I could tell you where I was sitting and who I was talking to. First thing I thought in my head was, that sounds stupid. So <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. I'm like, I don't know. Go knock uh, yourself out. Dumb word. That's a dumb word. <laughs> I have been able to now, I, you know, I, I sold my first piece of writing for, for like a real amount of money in, in the year 2000. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's 2022. I've been talking about a set of ideas for professionally. I've been talking about a set of ideas for 22 years with a substantial amount of lead up before that. In doing that, I've talked about them in a lot of ways, books, magazines, blogs, websites, podcasts, digital books, audio books, streaming on demand cable, right? I think that in 10 years, we're going to be talking about this set of ideas in ways that we don't imagine now, right? So in terms of like what's coming, I think that from a media perspective, continuing to evolve and make new stuff and make better stuff in ways that like that, that fit people's lives and, and talk about this very ancestral thing, like talking about like connections with nature but in ways that are always going to sort of like stretch our imaginations mm-hmm. going forward on a more like detailed level, more immediate level. We have new people coming on board all the time where I look at people that I really love, like what they do and we're big fans of them and bring them in. Uh, I, I mentioned a friend, Kimmy Werner, like she's a competitive spear fisherman, spear fisher woman from Hawaii, right? Like we started hanging out and really hit it off and she's doing some, work for us now. So continuing to add there, staying very, like as a company, we'll stay very focused in hunting, fishing, 
the culinary world, the conservation world, but just doing more of that and better. And also from a product standpoint to keep finding cool ideas, not going to step on your toes, Mark, (laughs) but keep finding cool ideas and cool products to bring to people, whether it's like physical goods or, or media. So things are great with us. I always point out, like, I, I don't like to talk about Vortex without pointing out that when, when Meat Eater was just a, a TV show starting out, Vortex had our back in a big way. And not even to, to leave it, uns- I'm not going to leave it unsaid, the great products, the phenomenal customer service, customer support, the great just people that work at Vortex. Everyone I know that works at Vortex, I'm like, I'd hang out with that dude and do hang out with a lot of them. And I have a trip coming up in a couple of weeks with a with a early Vortex employee that's been there for forever. So phenomenal people that like do the right thing, make great stuff. That's enough of a reason to be a Vortex customer. But on, on the other hand, for me personally, the, the fact that Vortex has been a supporter of what we're doing for such a long period of time and like an early backer when we were like nothing and no one knew what we were. They're like, oh, that that's cool. And, and we met and uh, to have had the relationship that we've had over the years is added to me that like if you like our stuff and you like watching Meat Eater, the TV show, you like listening to our podcast, you wind up on our website reading articles, that stuff. And, and, and to, to, to some degree, that stuff's there because we had Vortex's backing early on. We're not the same thing. We're different, but have had support from Vortex. and it's just been a great relationship and I cannot stress enough my uh, sense of allegiance to you guys for what you've done for us over the years and, and standing by us. So that, that means a tremendous amount to me. Well, Steve, I'll, I'll respond with, I mean, we sincerely appreciate you guys, you know, you personally, all the great people at Meteor, all the great work that you guys do, the kind words that you just said there is just like, you know, you know, for lack of a better, like right back at you, right? Because what you guys have done in the space has been pivotal. I think it's been revolutionary. I think you've changed the minds of, not changed the minds, but I think you've you've made even lifelong hunters maybe look at hunting a little bit differently and, or maybe just kind of examine, you know, the why behind their hunt. And And I think you've brought hunting to a broad audience of people who, may not have had any any contact with it you know and I, I may have brought this up before but i had a buddy of mine like grow, i still consider him one of my best friends right and my brother and i hunted all the time we're like dude you gotta hunt with us and and, and forgive me if i've told you the story before or, if, or even if i mentioned it on the podcast but it just stands out to me so and he's just like dude i'm not into it like it's not for me and then a couple years ago he calls me up he's like oh man i was watching uh watching uh, the show meat eater and uh, I just I just bought a shotgun. I'm going to go hunting. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you son of a... I'm like, I've been telling you hunting was cool for like 20 years. He and, needed it to come through the TV <laughs> screen, Mark, because then it's like, it's like God speaking when it comes to the TV screen. I'm like, he's like, man, that seems really cool. I'm like, what do you, what have I been saying? What, like, what do you, I don't, anyway. So anyway, so that is a compliment to your guys' style and content and delivery that I think it really is is making uh, uh, positive changes in, in people's lives. So, but yeah, no, Steve, thank you. And thank you for, for, for making the time to join us. It's always so good chatting. I always say this, we don't, we don't chat enough. I know everybody's super busy all the time, but yeah, thanks for all you guys do too. 
And uh, yeah, good luck out there, man. Go Let's get uh, our kids together, man. We should start talking about uh, Youth Turkey 2023. Dude, lock it. In. Boardman, the Boardman <laughs> Ranella shootout, man. <laughs> Lock it in. I'm gonna put it on the calendar. I, will, you know, I, I know just the guy's place that we're gonna hunt too, but I haven't told him yet, so I'll hold off. I think you probably know what I'm gonna say. <laughs> yeah, I think. We'll, I think far away from you. I think. I think right, we'll, we'll be good. We'll later, man. Thank you very much. All right, man. Thanks, Steve. Take care, man. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button, give us a review, or leave a comment. We want to hear what you have to say. If you have a question or topic suggestion, let us know that as well via the Vortex Nation podcast YouTube page or any of Vortex's social platforms. That helps us cover exactly what you want to hear so we can provide the best information to help you with your hunting, shooting, and related activities, and ultimately enjoy them to their fullest potential. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.